Uh, last week, we started a study in Habakkuk, so hopefully you know where the book is at this morning, but uh, get yourself situated there, Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, last week, we started this study, and I've called uh, our series in Habakkuk, Unreasonable, Reasonable Trust, uh, because Habakkuk, by the end of the book, after a conversation with God, walks away with a trust that is unreasonable in the sense that it's not based on what he can see, but it's reasonable in the sense that it is based on God. And if we could get to that place in our lives of that kind of trust, I think we'd see incredible things take place and occur. Now last week, when the dialogue opened, Habakkuk had a complaint about God's people to God. He said the law is paralyzed, there's lots of injustice and unholiness in the land, and God surprised Habakkuk with his answer. He said, I've seen it, and I'm going to discipline it with the armies of Chaldea, or the Babylonian armies. They're going to invade you, take you away into captivity, and that's my answer. That's how I will spark a revival among my people, and that floored Habakkuk, he argued with God, how can you use a people more unrighteous than we are, a people who are clearly evil to discipline us, and that's where we left off this dialogue last week. So what I wanna do this morning is read the next stage of this conversation first, the whole second chapter, pray, and then think about these words. So let's start off there in verse one, if you would follow along with me. He said, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, God said, and this is about the Babylonians, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not, verse six, all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you, this is God speaking to Babylon, will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe, verse 9, to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him, verse 12, who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's, label, people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled 
with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him, verse 15, who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet, verse 18, is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this movement in your word, somber words, these woes of judgment being proclaimed upon ancient Babylon and perhaps even more than them. And so, Lord, we come to you today and we ask that you would speak to and teach us on how to live this life of trust and faith, the righteous living by faith. Instruct us, Lord, and help us, Lord, by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Well, many of us, uh, we love, I think, in our culture, the idea of the courtroom. I think this has even been demonstrated in recent weeks. We love our courtroom dramas, whether they're uh, on television. We love live court TV. We love following court cases. We love seeing people being questioned and on the stand, watching them squirm. We love the tension of the courtroom. And at this stage in the book of Habakkuk, God is in Habakkuk's courtroom. Habakkuk is questioning God and challenging God. God has, as I said, announced to Habakkuk that a more unrighteous nation than Israel is going to be his scalpel to remove the cancer from within Israel. And Habakkuk is floored by God's statements. He can't imagine how God would use such a wicked people to accomplish such a righteous work. And so he argues with God. He tells God of his disagreements. He tells God that he doesn't think of God as wise in this instance. And he's challenging who God is, challenging God's goodness, challenging God's justice, challenging God's love, and challenging God's wisdom. How could God allow this unrighteous nation to run rampant against all the nations? Now, the main idea of the passage that we just read, the big idea, is that God makes a promise to Habakkuk, and I think a promise to people beyond Habakkuk, even us today, that Babylon and everyone who imitates Babylon will one day answer to God for the evil that they've committed. God responds here to Habakkuk's accusations by assuring him that Babylon's crimes will not go unpunished. And God does this by pronouncing these five woes of judgment that we read in verse 6 through 20 against Babylon, 
detailing the evil that Babylon had committed. And when God pins these woes, he's demonstrating that even though Habakkuk thinks he's all in touch with the evil and injustice of the Babylonian people, God sees it way more clearly than Habakkuk ever could. God is saying, I see all of this. I see more than you can see, Habakkuk. And God summarized what he thought of the Babylonian way of life in verse four. Look at it again with me in your Bibles. God summarized them by saying, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That word puffed up is the same word that would be used to describe a bloated toad. It's like he's saying they are bloated with pride and arrogance. They think they answer to no man. They think that their power, their military authority means that there will never be a day of reckoning for the evils and the atrocities that they've committed. But God saw their pride and he committed to judging them. But if that's how God described the unrighteous, does he have a description for the righteous in this passage? Absolutely, it's also found in verse four. After saying that the unrighteous, his soul is puffed up and not upright within him, God says at the end of verse four, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now, a lot of you know that this is an important phrase in Christianity. In the New Testament, this verse is quoted in Galatians, it's quoted in Romans, and it's quoted in Hebrews, drawing out different facets of the truth of this verse, but all making the bigger point that through faith in Jesus Christ in his gospel, we can access the righteousness of God. In other words, how can I be righteous before God? Through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for me. And this passage, or this verse, was also used not just in quotations in the New Testament, but in a significant way in the life of Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 16th century. Before Martin Luther was a Christian, he was a Roman Catholic monk who was trying to earn his way to favor with God, trying to earn his salvation. One day he left Germany, his home country, and went to Rome as a pilgrim. There in Rome, there were steps that the church had said had been miraculously transferred from Pontius Pilate's judgment hall in Jerusalem to Rome. So steps that Jesus himself had walked on were there, they said, in Rome. There were stains on the steps that the church claimed were remnants of blood that had dripped from Jesus when he was walking on those stairs. They'd taken glass and put them over those stains so that pilgrims could kiss the glass and the stains would not fade. And in making pilgrimage, many would get on their hands and knees and with pain and suffering and agonizing in spirit, climb up those stairs and kiss those blood stains. And one day in the midst of doing that, Martin Luther, who was trying to earn his way to God in that moment, Habakkuk 2 verse four flashed into his mind. The righteous will live by their faith. He realized in that moment that he was trying to live by his works and not by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the middle of doing that penitence type of thing, he stood up, 
went back to Germany, and the rest is history. He became the great reformer and helped us get to, in, a, in part, where we are today. So that's how the church has used this passage throughout the ages. But for the original readers, the faith that God described meant simply trusting in God's plan, believing that God could use the Chaldeans in the way that he said he'd use the Chaldeans, and also believing that God would judge these Chaldeans or Babylonians in the distant future. So even when the Israelites were 600 miles from home in slavery and captivity for decades, they were to be trusting, believing, confident that God was still on the throne and that God would one day vanquish their enemies and judge them for their evil. And that brand of faith, if you can get it into your soul, into your spirit, into your bones, it produces a solid steadfastness inside of you. It's a faith that leads to a faithful life, a strong conviction that God is worth following no matter what situation you find yourself in. With this kind of faith, you depart from the brand of Christianity that says, if God does these things on my list, then I will follow him. No, this kind of faith says, no matter what I face, I wanna walk with God. This faith is described in Hebrews chapter 11. It tells us that it generates an assurance and a confidence about God's unseen promises. It generates an Abel-like thankfulness to God. It generates an Enoch-like walk with God. It generates a Noah-like obedience to God. It generates an Abraham-like endurance that waits for God. It generates an Isaac-like submission to God. And it generates a Jacob-like desire for the blessing of God along with a Joseph-like anticipation of the future permanent city of God. This type of faith produces a beautiful brand of life in us. So the question that I have is, is there anything in this passage that shows us how this kind of faith or trust can be developed in our lives? And I wanna draw out three things for you today. The first thing I wanna show you is that this passage, I think, tells us that we need to be a people who patiently wait for God. Habakkuk realized this right, right off the bat. Some people have their arguments against God, their reasons they won't believe in God, and they think it's a real mic drop kind of moment. Like, if there's such a good God, then why would, and then they just drop the mic and walk away as if the conversation's over. Habakkuk knew otherwise. He had his arguments, but he realized, I've got to go back. I've got to see if God has anything to say. So in verse one, look at what he said. He said, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk had a sense that God was going to give him his own perspective. He'd shared his thoughts with God, but now he believes that he needs to hear God's thoughts to himself. So he goes to this place called the Watchtower. I think it's a proverbial watchtower. It's a place where Habakkuk would go to get into the word and to see if God might 
minister to his heart. And it's a super prophetic or super common biblical idea from the Old Testament. Prophets were often pictured as watchmen or watch people who would stand in the watchtower and look out to see what God wanted to show God's people. And so he goes up to the watchtower, God, what do you want to say? We might feel that when Habakkuk did this, it was a prophet thing and not something that we can do, but it's actually a step that we can also take. When we're reasoning with God, when our arguments with God take us as far as they can take us, when we become stuck on the problem as far as we can see it, we need to, like Habakkuk, go to our watchtower and patiently wait for instruction. We have to wait for God. Now the cool thing about a watchtower, if you think about it, is that it is an elevated place that is above the area that it's designed to protect. So perhaps in the middle of a field or on the edge of the city, you'd climb into the watchtower and you'd get a perspective that you could not get in the flow of everyday life. And I think we as Christians need to find watchtower-like experiences throughout our lives that pull us out of the flow of life so that we can hear what God is trying to say about the regular flow of life. Hopefully, church services are like this. Hopefully, Bible reading is like this. Hopefully, our prayer closet is like this. Moments where we pull out of the regular course of life to hear what God has to say about the regular course of life. We have to, like a student stuck on a problem, raising his hand, waiting for his teacher or tutor to come and give him the right teaching, we have to raise our hand and say, God, I don't know the right thing to think, but I need to get into your word. I need to know what you have to say. And God was willing to say it. Notice in verse two that before God gave his full answer, all the woes that we read, he said, In verse two, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Now I'll let you in on a little pet peeve that I have. This is often used, this verse, by Christian business people to describe or even church leadership to describe how what we need to do is we need to make clear our vision and mission statements. We need to write them down, memorize them, and be able to tell them to people so that when They see the vision and hear the vision. We can run with the vision. So our church's vision statement, Jesus famous, like you gotta know it and I'm gonna talk about it, I'm gonna write it down, make it plain so you can run with it. It might be a good concept, but that's not how Habakkuk would have understood what God was saying. What he would have understood God to be saying is, Habakkuk, I have a perspective and what I want is for you to write it down so that prophetic runners can go all throughout Israel reproducing the word I say to you to everyone else in Israel. And when I tell you that the Babylonians will one day be judged even though they are coming first to judge you, I want everybody in Israel to be confident of that knowledge. I want them to be like Daniel, who when Daniel was drugged into captivity was confident that that was not the end of the story. Daniel would study prophets like Jeremiah who said, we're gonna be here for 70 years. Submit to the captivity because rescue is coming one day. And Daniel was able to run in the truth that God had declared. And this is another great way to patiently wait for God. 
is to get into his word so that you can have a biblical perspective on all that is happening in our word to get world, to get further clarity on his truth and on his promises. When you cling to them, you can run through life with the correct mentality. You know, trail race organizers understand this. They understand the importance of learning what's coming in advance. If you go to a trail race website, one of the features of every race, unless they're trying to punish you on purpose, one of the features of every race is there will be a little tab or a page that you can go to where it will show you the course, the map of the course, and it will give you an elevation change profile that you can look at. You can see when there's big hills and when there's downhills, and this is important for a runner to know in advance. Sometimes a runner will even take a Sharpie marker and draw on their uh, forearm, you know, mile five, mile eight, mile 12, mile 19, indicating a big climb is coming at each one of these mile markers. It helps you know how to run. Don't sprint at mile four if you're gonna have to truck uphill at mile five. Prepare yourself for that next climb that's coming. And as we sit with God's word, we learn what the course of this world is like. We find out what is coming, we find out where all this is going, and how we, as God's people, should respond. Well, Before I move on to the next point, I want to also say that another way that we should patiently wait is, uh, this should be obvious, is with patience. This is not something that we really like to do. We don't want to patiently wait for God to administer his justice and his judgment. We'd like him to do it right now. We'd like it to be immediate. But God wants us to patiently wait for it. There's an illustration of our unwillingness to be patient in the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah said a lot of the same things that Habakkuk said, but with a little bit more prophetic flair and a lot more words. And one day, Jeremiah took a yoke that was designed for oxen or cattle, and he put it on his own neck, and he went in before the important authority figures, and he said, thus says the Lord, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, they are coming, and they are going to yoke us into slavery and carry us into captivity. In other places, Jeremiah had said, and this captivity will last for 70 years. Well, there was a false prophet there that day when Jeremiah gave that prophecy. His name was Hananiah. He went up to Jeremiah and he took the yoke off of Jeremiah's head and he broke the yoke in front of everyone. And he said, thus says the Lord, in two years, God will break the Babylonians just like I have broken this yoke. And so the people had a choice. Do we believe Jeremiah, who just predicted that we will for seven decades be in slavery in a foreign land, or do we believe Hananiah that after two years of military struggle, we will overcome and God will defeat these Babylonian people? And you can guess who they sided with. Faced with a long-term judgment or a short-term gain, they went with Hananiah. They, they refused to believe the very word of God. But we have to believe in God's, what some call his slow-moving justice. Now, I believe personally that the prophecies that God administered over 
the Chaldeans or the Babylonians in Habakkuk chapter two actually have an application beyond the original Babylonians. You see, in the book of Revelation in chapter 17 and 18, there is a figure a new Babylon, not the Babylon from Habakkuk's day, but something else. And when you read about it, it appears to be everything that our world system is about. There's greed, there's lust, there's idolatry, there's slavery, there's covetousness, there's false worship, it's all there. And in Revelation 17 and 18, what's described is the final judgment of that great Babylon. And I believe what God is saying here is that, look, this judgment is coming. I will deal with all of it one day, but you have to patiently wait for that judgment to come. All week long as I've been studying this chapter, I've had a song rolling through my head. Uh, it's a song that Bob Dylan originally wrote, but I've got the Jimi Hendrix version of it rolling through my head, the All Along the Watchtower. Uh, the song is a conversation between two people. One of them is a joker or an entertainer. Some people think that Dylan was talking about himself. And the other person is a thief. And the joker is telling the thief that he has been taken advantage of by business people who are thieving from his land and have no one asking them to repay their debts. He feels that an injustice has occurred in his life, but they're on their way to the watchtower. A lot of people think that the song was actually inspired from Isaiah chapter 21, which is a chapter that probably inspired Habakkuk to go up to the watchtower to see if God would speak to him. In that chapter, God tells Isaiah to go to the watchtower so that he could witness the future fall of the same Babylon that Habakkuk was talking about in this passage. The idea is simple. Though we see and experience injustice and evil, one day God will settle all accounts. So we have to take the trip to the watchtower to climb up on it and to reimagine the moment that God will judge every evil and injustice and make all things right one day. But another way that the passage shows us to live by faith is to sing the five woes that God pronounced over evil Babylon in verse six through 20. And I'm saying it this way on purpose. God is actually not the singer of these five woes in verse six through 20. He's very careful to say that someone else is going to sing these songs. The Babylonians came and took advantage of people, and the people they took advantage of will be the singers of this song. Look at verse six. God said, these are those who will take up their taunt against Babylon with scoffing and riddles for him. And when you go back to verse five, you see that these are those that Babylon had taken advantage of. What this means is that Israelites and other nations that Babylon had destroyed they were meant to sing this song. It's like a battle rap to Babylon, like you're going down with the confidence that God is our defender. And I think in a sense, as they sang these woes over ancient historical Babylon, we can sing these woes as well. The child of God can sing these woes 
over the spiritual system of Babylon today. We can rejoice that one day all oppression and violence and greed and sensuality and idolatry will be destroyed. So what did these people sing about? Well, let's just do a quick overview of what they sang. In the first woe, in verse six through eight, they basically sang that the plunderer would one day be plundered. And God had an interesting way of expressing it. He said that they had come in, they'd taken peoples that weren't their own, wealth that wasn't their own, land that wasn't their own. They'd plundered, but God said, one day you will be plundered. Well, what the Babylonians thought they were doing was taking, but God kind of compared it to a bank. He's saying to them, you thought you were robbing the bank over and over and over again, but that's not what you were doing. You were pulling out loans over and over and over again. And one day, you will be asked to repay. In verse nine through 11, in the second part of the song, uh, it says that the one doing harm will eventually suffer harm. Now God depicted them in this movement of the song in a very interesting way. He compared them to birds that build their nests high in the branches, trying to get security from everyone and everything else, warning subsequent generations not to put their own personal security in such a high and exalted position and place. Think about others. Everyone's entitled to build and save and prosper, but what these Babylonians had done was create their secure position by destabilizing other peoples and nations. And God said that even the stones and the timber that they stole from other lands would cry out against them as a witness. The third woe of the song is found in verse 12 to 14. There, God said that the oppressor would eventually experience oppression and end up with nothing. They built their towns, God said, and founded their cities with the blood of laborers and slaves who were given no choice in the matter. God said that building a society like that was like building a bonfire. You think you're building something great and beautiful, but in the end, all you have is a pile of ash. All their efforts, he said, would be lost, their future was nothingness. The fourth woe of the song is found in verse 15 to 17. It says that those who promote rampant sensuality will one day be exposed. The exposer, in other words, will be exposed. God said in verse 15 that they were using alcohol or substance to get their neighbors drunk, all with the goal of increasing nakedness in the world. This was God's way of saying that this Babylonian society and system promotes sensuality and sexual expression that defies God and uses alcohol and substance to get there. But God saw all this violence. He said that he would judge it, including, by the way, in verse 17, saying that he would judge the violence they did to the forests of Lebanon and the animal species in Lebanon. God would judge it all. And the last woe is found in verse 18 to 20. It says that those who try to make their own gods will one day hear the voice of the true God. You know, making an idol is the production of something that you can say, this is how I want you to talk to me. I'm making the rules. But at the end of this chapter, God says, 
All the world must be in silence before me. God is a speaking God, and the last woe declares this truth. Now, these are heavy portions of God's word, but each woe, I think, is worth our contemplation today. In each one of these woes, the Babylonian actions should make us sorrowful. These are not things that we should gloss over or not be mournful over within our spirit. No, they should make us sorrowful, but we should add to our sorrow the joy of knowing that God will right every single wrong one day. And this desire is embedded in the human heart. They know this in the movies. You know, when you're watching a movie and the villain is revealed, Maybe it's a husband who's been unfaithful to his wife or someone who is cheating someone else or just some super villain that has terrible powers and he's using them for evil. You know, whatever it might be, when those characters are revealed in movies, there's something that happens to the audience's heart. We begin looking forward to the moment that they will get theirs. We begin looking forward to the moment where this wrong is corrected. And we love it in the movies because usually they wrap it up right during the movie. Inside of three hours, justice is served and we walk away feeling like, yeah, that's right. That guy got what was coming to him. But this song, it's encouraging us to sing it so that we might wait with patience for the justice that God promises to deliver. It's coming. In the classic book, Anne of Green Gables, I've, of course, have read it. I have three daughters, Anne, I'm a Christian. But uh, <clears throat> the main character is this little orphan girl named Anne. She's feisty. She's got red hair that she doesn't like. And she's adopted by this loving but hard woman named Marilla and her brother. And one day she asks Marilla if she'd ever seen anyone who'd outgrown their red hair. And Marilla says to her, no, I've never seen that, and I don't suspect I will ever see that. And it crushes Anne. And she says, well, that is another hope gone. My life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. <laughs> now, this is true without the gospel. Every time we see injustice, every time we see rampant sensuality. Every time we see greed and covetousness, every time we see violence committed against someone else, every time we see these things without the gospel, there is no hope whatsoever, and life would be a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. But because of Jesus, when we see these things, witness these things, experience these things, yea, even partake of these things. When those seeds go in, out can come hope that that is not the way that it always has to or will be. So when we see injustice or greed or violence or sensuality or idolatry, we should let them go in, not to the graveyard, but to the fertile ground of hope. That hope would bloom forth in what Jesus is going to do. Because of Jesus, Despair is the fertile ground of hope. I think all of this is hinted at as I close 
in this passage. God said in verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God made the same promise, by the way, to the prophet Isaiah. And right here, God pronounces this promise in a beautiful spot. There's five woes. The middle woe is the third woe. Attached to the third woe, right in the middle of all this chaos is God's promise. A day is coming where every single person on earth is going to love me. A day is coming where I am appreciated and loved and adored. That day is coming. And of course, as Christians, we know that that day comes with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we're waiting for that day. We're waiting for that moment. And as we're confronted with a culture or a world that is often hostile to Christianity, we have the strong confidence that a day is coming when God will be loved by everyone. Like Abraham in the Old Testament era, we are waiting in faith for that day. Hebrews said it this way of Abraham. It said, by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. But often we're like children in the back of the family SUV. You know, God, are we there yet? (laughs) When are we gonna arrive? When are you going to deal with all of this evil that we are witnessing? And for this feeling, God and Habakkuk gave us a wise practice. In his last word to Habakkuk in verse 20, and this is the last time God is speaking in the whole book of Habakkuk, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This exhortation is in direct contrast with what came right before it. Right before it, God said that the Babylonians made idols that couldn't speak. The Babylonians could say whatever they wanted to say. They could argue with their gods all day long and always win the argument because their gods could not respond. But we, as Christians, We must be silent because our God speaks. He's alive, he's working, he's promising and judging and will judge. Like Habakkuk, we can replace our complaints and our arguments and our doubts with the firm expectation that God will come and establish his kingdom. There's a passage I love in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We're at the beginning of uh, that book, the Pevensey children stumble across this new land called Narnia. They don't understand the place, it's winter there, and they soon discover that the animals in Narnia are able to talk, and they're brought into the house of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who quickly try to acclimate them to Narnia by explaining some things to them. And Mrs. Beaver, begins explaining that all of Narnia is under the spell of a wicked witch and that she had the power to keep winter around but also to turn her enemies into stone and that they were waiting, though, for the return of a lion whose name was Aslan and that Aslan would defeat the witch in battle. One of the Pevensey kids 
interjected at that moment and asked a question. It was Edmund. He said, won't she just turn him into stone also? And Mrs. Beaver replied, turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do. And more than I expect of her. No, he'll put all to rights. As it says in an old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. A major facet of the Christian life is our questions about evil and injustice in the world. What is God doing? How will God react? But like Habakkuk, we must trust God's promise. Just as Mr. and Mrs. Beaver awaited Aslan, we must await God's wise, God's certain, and God's successful judgment of evil. We must believe that a day is coming when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the world like the waters cover the sea. We must know that a day is coming where his fame will run from pole to pole and every nation, every culture, every society will be allegiant to his name when he returns. And in trusting silence, we must wait for the day when Christ comes to rule the nations with a rod of iron, as it says in Revelation chapter 19, when the lion will lie down with the lamb, as it says in Isaiah 11, and when the whole world will flow to the house of God in adoration and worship, like it says in Micah chapter four. We must believe, in other words, that because Christ returns, spring will come again.